When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be concentrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with that is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what he said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, Anna the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to, to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Geneva, good morning. A career-obsessed father who neglects his family and kids, but through the magic of Christmas comes to see his heirs just in time for Christmas. A big city gal returns to her hometown at Christmas, maybe a town that looks a little like Columbiana, where she rekindles the romance of an old flame and she's reminded of what Christmas is all about. The mom-and-pop business that's on the cusp of failure is saved by a Christmas miracle. Do any of these storylines sound familiar to you? If you're like me, you watched at least one Christmas movie this week with a storyline with a trope that went something like this. I hope you enjoyed it like I did. One storyline, though, one trope that never seems to show up, though, is like when the post-holiday blues set in. I was thinking about this phenomenon this week, that, and there's probably... You know, numerous reasons why this happens to some of us. Uh, we eat too much. Our family is leaving on this day. We need more sun, maybe. But I often think I think a lot of it is because there's this mismatch between our hopes for Christmas and the reality of Christmas. So we, we hold up in our minds a Christmas of our imagination, a Christmas of the movies, and then we hold up the Christmas that we just experienced, and oftentimes they don't seem to match up together. The Bible so often 
doesn't deliver the trope, the Christmas trope that we want or expect. And as the older I get, the more I appreciate this. The more I appreciate this because I think the Bible actually maps onto reality. The Bible understands our deepest hungers and our deepest pains much more than Hallmark does. Our passage for today begins with Mary, and she's with Joseph, and the newborn Jesus. They, they are taking Jesus to present him at the temple. And Mary has three things that need to happen after this baby boy is born. One, he needs to be circumcised. We read that happens on the eighth day. Secondly, he needs to be presented to the Lord. According to the Jewish law, all firstborn males belong to the Lord. And so what would happen is that these males would be redeemed. They had to be bought back from the Lord. And what they would do is the parents would bring five shekels to the temple and offer that to then redeem, to get back the boy. And the third thing that needed to happen was Mary needed to go through these purification rites. She would have been, in the Jewish law, considered ritually impure for 40 days because of the bleeding that occurred at birth. And the sacrifice that she would make would make her ceremonially, ceremonially clean. So I think probably to our ears, these rites sound a little bit odd, maybe. I'm sure one day, a couple thousand years from now, people might be confused by things like that we do around births, like gender reveal parties, like with pink and blue cakes and fireworks that lead to forest fires. But I think we learn two things from here. We learn, one, that Jesus grew up in a Jewish household that meticulously observed the law of Moses. And two, we keep coming back to this in our, in our series on Mary, It shows us that Mary was poor. She couldn't afford a lamb. She had to do the sacrifice that would have been for a poor person, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's a poor person's sacrifice. So Mary and Joseph, they come to the temple to meet these legal requirements. And all of a sudden, I assume this stranger, this old guy named Simeon, comes and grabs this six-week-old baby. Now, there's a lot of, as I'm talking about, there's a lot of cultural differences between then and now. But I'm guessing even then, like, parents didn't love it when a strange old guy grabbed their child. Like, maybe if it's your fourth, because by that point, you just, you just need some help. But not your first. So Simeon takes Jesus, this little boy, in his arms, and he looks at him. I imagine him, I don't think the text doesn't say it, but I'm imagining him holding up. And he's thinking, I can die now. I've seen what I've been waiting for. Simeon, like the prophet Anna, he's been, he's been patiently waiting and look, looking forward to this moment. He's been praying and fasting and waiting with hope and expectation when he would see the Lord's Messiah. And now he sees it right with his own eyes, holding it up, this little six-week-old boy, and he thinks, I can die now. I can die in peace. And this whole time, Joseph and Mary, the text tells us, are watching And if they were alarmed or puzzled by that first, that Simeon grabbing their child, now we read they are marveling at what is being said about their son. They're in awe. I love this image of Simeon holding the boy, praising God, Joseph and Mary standing right there. And as this all unfolds, they marvel. They're moving from puzzlement to marvel. I think this picture gives to us as followers of Jesus an image of what our task is to do with Jesus. I want to point out two things here. First, I think one of the primary tasks we have as followers of Jesus is to hold up Jesus, to speak of Jesus like Simeon in a way that those around us marvel at Jesus. 
Okay, we live, I've talked about this before, we, are, we live in a society in a world right now where, where cultural Christianity is quickly melting away. We recognize that Christmas now is not the same as it was 50 years ago. That, that in many ways, God has been removed from the public square. And the response of Christians over the particularly last couple of decades has to become cultural warriors. We feel it is our duty to take up the fight from the removal of God from the public sphere in our society. I was listening to a pastor talk recently. He said, he said my job as a pastor is not to be a cultural warrior. He said, we lost that war. That war is over. He said, my job is to make Jesus beautiful again amidst the brokenness of secularism. I'm more of an artist than a cultural warrior. I love that image of pastors, of followers of Jesus being artists and not cultural warriors. I love that idea of us working to make Jesus beautiful again. Because I think sometimes this time of year, I don't think it's intentional, but I think sometimes we can hold up Jesus in a way that actually leaves people on the outside not marveling at Jesus, but wanting to move away from Jesus. Let me give you an example. Again, I think we've recognized that, that something has shifted at Christmas in, in, in compared to the way it was in the past. And frankly, I think it's remarkable that the whole country stops on this day, even if they don't profess this Jesus as Lord and Savior, to mark it. But, but we know something has changed. And maybe it makes, maybe it makes us fearful Maybe it makes us a little worried. And you see, particularly in the last couple of decades, we hear this language of the war on Christmas or, or keep Christ in Christmas. And here's, here's what I want you to consider. I've never seen once in my life someone who's outside of the faith see keep Christ in Christmas and marvel at Christ. I've never seen it. I've never, saw, I've never seen someone who's outside of our faith hear about a war on Christmas and say, I want to be part of that. That, that language that comes from a posture of fear and self-preservation. We're fearful that this Christmas is not what it used to be, that somehow our culture is moving away from us. And when we do that, when we hold up Jesus with a posture of fear and self-preservation, we don't let people marvel at Jesus. We encourage people to move away from Jesus. And I want to encourage you today and going forward, our job is like Simeon's. Our job is about holding up Jesus, this, this boy, this man, in a way that makes people marvel at him. Marvel at who Jesus is. Marvel at the life he lived. Marvel at the hope he offers to the world. Secondly, I want you to notice what makes this moment so sweet for Simeon and Anna. What makes it so sweet is that they're hungering for it. They are longing. They are desperate for a Savior. As N.T. Wright points out, they were both living in a world of patient hope where suffering has become a way of life. Simeon and Anna know what it's like to suffer. Simeon and Anna understand darkness. This week in the final push to Christmas Day, in addition to, to movies, I'm sure you, like me, were bombarded with images and messages and advertisements on TV that gave you a vision of what Christmas is, what, what the story of Christmas is about. But the advertisement that stuck out to me by far the most that I saw this week was a full-page ad in Cleveland's largest news, newspaper. And in the middle, it had a single word in bold capital letters that said, help. Help. 
The ad was sponsored by multiple Cleveland area hospitals. And in smaller print below, it said, we need your help. We have more COVID-19 patients in our hospitals than ever before. And the overwhelming majority are unvaccinated. Help. And I feel like this word captures in so many ways, I think the way many of us are feeling right now, help. At least in my lifetime, I'm not as old as some of you, I can think of no Christmas that I've arrived at that has felt more challenging, where so much in our world and our country has felt so uncertain. Along with the arrival of of Christmas arrives another wave of COVID, now two years into it. We've we've lost over 800,000 people in our country to COVID. We are exhausted There seems to be no side and end to this pandemic. The deaths for us are starting to hit closer and closer to home, and we feel helpless. Help. But the thing about darkness is that it's in the darkness that the light shines most brightly. It is in the long waiting of Simeon and Anna, the years of praying and fasting, of hope and suffering of their nation, that when Jesus arrives, the light shines brightly. The darkness of the world, the things that make us feel out of control remind us, I think this year more clearly than in the past, that we are desperate for a savior. It's hard to hunger, it's hard to to long for a savior if you don't even think you need a savior. But see, if your eyes are open, you realize we don't just need some help patching up a few tears in our society. We don't just need to do a few things to get our planet on the back on the right track. We don't just need a little bit better plan for 2022 that if we can actually keep our New Year's resolutions this year, we're going to get our life back on track. We need a rescue. We need a savior. And what is beautiful about this, uh, this picture of Simeon and Anna is that they give us a way to how do we navigate the darkness? How do we navigate the darkness that just keeps coming on and wave after wave? How do they do it? They don't do it defensively. They don't do it in a denial of reality. They don't do it cynically. They don't do it from a fearful posture or a hopeless posture. How does Simeon and Anna do it? They do it with prayer, with worship, with hope, ready to point to Jesus when he comes and say, that's what we're looking for. This is the salvation we're hungering for. This is the only thing that's going to get this back on track. The story of Christmas is a story of salvation. It's a story about hope and joy and light coming into the world. But I want you to notice something. The story takes a really surprising twist. It's not the tropes you see in the Christmas movies. Because in this story, swords start coming out. Notice what Simeon says next to Mary after this, this beautiful oracle and this blessing. He turns to her and he said, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Like, do you, feel the, do you feel the dark clouds that have moved over this scene? Just about a month ago, I was right up here with some children, three children from Midway two, uh, and two moms, and we were dedicating to the Lord. I just thought it was such a joyous occasion. There were no, no shekels, no doves being slaughtered. We just had this dedication and a blessing. And I, it was just an incredible, joyful occasion to me. But can you imagine how Brittany and Melody would have felt if after that blessing, I turned to those two mothers and I said, a sword is coming. A sword is coming that is going to pierce your soul. Things would have turned pretty dark at that moment in the service. But that's what Simeon does to Mary. 
Up until this point in Luke's story, if you've been following with us, Mary has received a number of words of prophecy. The angel Gabriel comes to her and speaks words of prophecy. And Mary responds by saying, may your word to me be fulfilled. Elizabeth speaks words to Mary and she bursts into song, the Magnificat. The shepherds, as we saw the other night, speak words to Mary and she treasures them in her heart. But these words of a sword piercing her soul, Mary has no response. I think this is interesting. There's nothing, silence. No words of assent, no song, no treasuring, no marveling, silence. Why are swords coming out in a story about salvation? And don't think in your mind like the little wooden swords at Christmas time. Don't think like little pocket knives. The word Luke uses here is for a large, broad, two-edged sword. Think about it. What do swords do? I think of two things that swords do. Swords separate. They cleave. When they come down, they split things in two, and they pierce. Once a sword enters into something, it does all kinds of damage and it causes all kinds of suffering and pain. And Simeon says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. In other words, Simeon is saying, this little six little cute little six week old baby, this baby is not only gonna save the world, this baby is going to divide the world. This baby is gonna create turmoil. This baby's gonna create opposition and crisis. Is that your image of Jesus? We have a, we've been going through these uh, books in our house, these books about the Bible that are designed for kids and, 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 uh, and almost all the characters and all of them are cartoons. And one day my, un- my youngest son Isaac said to his mom, mom, when we die, do we wake up like cartoons like Jesus? which is a totally fair question because he's looking at all these stories about the Bible and every one of the characters is a cartoon. And he is thinking in his mind, understandably, maybe one day I'll be a cartoon like Jesus. I think one of the challenges we have in our, certainly in our wider culture, I think more and more in the church is that we know just enough information about Jesus to see him as something like a cartoon or if not a cartoon, something like the nice protagonist in that Hallmark Christmas movie. We forget that one day Jesus will grow and become a man and he will start to refer to himself as a sword. In a passage of Matthew's gospel that quite frankly should probably make us Anabaptists just a little bit uncomfortable, Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. As Fred Craddock says, Jesus will bring truth to light and in doing so, throw all who come in contact with him into a crisis of decision. Did you hear what Craddock said? You come in contact with Jesus, you come in contact with a crisis of decision. What does he mean? When you encounter the real Jesus, you encounter something closer to a sword. Because what does a sword do? A sword cleaves. A sword makes you go one way or another. And you will know you have encountered the real Jesus and not the cartoon Jesus when I think two things happen. One, and we've already talked some about this, you will realize that Jesus is so much more beautiful, so much more stunning than you ever imagined. You will realize that Jesus' love for you as seen in the incarnation is so much more profound than you will ever get your mind around. You have no idea how much Jesus loves you. 
When you encounter the real Jesus, you realize I have no idea to the extent that Jesus loves me. And secondly, when you encounter the real Jesus, you will encounter not only salvation, but a sword. Jesus cleaves, Jesus separates, Jesus divides. When you encounter the real Jesus, there is no room for neutrality. When you encounter the real Jesus, he forces you into a crisis decision. Do I go this way or do I go that way? Is Jesus who he said he was or is he not? And Jesus, the angels, the shepherds, Simeon, Annan, they all say he's the savior of the world. And you come to a choice, is Jesus the savior of the world, who they say he is, who he will say he is, or is he a madman? Is he a joke? Is he a cartoon? When you encounter the real Jesus, you encounter salvation and you encounter a sword. You encounter someone who forces you into a crisis decision. Do I go this way or do I go that way? Do I follow that man or do I follow my own way? Because there is no neutrality with Jesus. This is the stark reality. You are either moving towards Jesus like Simeon and Anna, or you are moving away from Jesus. He always throws us into a crisis of decision because there's no neutrality with Jesus. But there's another sword in this story. There's multiple swords. Jesus is likely one sword, but, but there's another sword that pierces. And Simeon says, as I said, that sword's coming from Mary. Edward III points out that Mary is the only person in Luke's gospel whose soul is mentioned and described. Luke talks about Mary's soul twice. The first time is, is in the Magnificat, which Christiana preached on last week. And in that soul, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Okay, That's the first image of the soul. Mary magnifying glory, praising God. The second, and the only other mention of soul here, is, is right here when he says, a sword will pierce your own soul. So what does, what does Simeon mean? What does Simeon mean when he says to Mary, a sword's coming for you, a sword's gonna pierce your soul? We don't know, we don't know exactly for sure, but, but the history is long thought that Simeon's referring to Mary's experience of the death of her son, Jesus. I don't know what it's like to lose a son. I've read about people who've lost sons. I've, I've listened to some people who've lost their own sons. And, and a sword piercing the deepest part of one's being, that sounds like an apt description from what I've understood. In the, in the series on Mary, we're looking at Mary, as I'm trying to remind you, as not just the mother of Jesus, but as a disciple of Jesus, as someone we can look to and learn what it means to follow Jesus. And I think we learn two things here. One, if you're someone who's lost a loved one, especially if you're a mother, if you are a mother who's lost a son, you have someone in Mary who gets you who knows what your pain is like. I don't know what your pain is like. If someone says to you they know what your pain is like, they don't know what your pain is like. But Mary does. Mary sees your pain. Mary gets your pain. Mary knows what it's like to be a mother and to have a sword pierce your soul, to have a sword go in there and just start doing all kinds of damage. Mary gets you. You have, not, and Mary, not only, uh, not only someone to follow, you've got a sister who gets you. Secondly, we know from John's gospel that not only will Mary lose a son, but she will be present there when her son dies on the cross. When Jesus' darkest hour comes, later on at the end of his life, when, when almost everyone else has abandoned him, Mary is there. Mary does not abandon her son. Being a follower of Jesus means exalting, means magnifying, means holding up so those around us will marvel at Jesus. And it also means suffering. 
If we are to follow this Jesus, not the trope of a Christmas music movie, but the real Jesus, we are going to have to be willing to suffer for him. We must be as willing as Edward Sree writes to draw near to him at the cross and be pierced by the sword. Real discipleship is about salvation and swords. Being a follower of Jesus is not about escaping suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of the world. It is about moving towards it like Mary. See, we want to draw close to Jesus when, when he's handing out the bread, just like in the stories and the gospels. But when the suffering and the cross comes, we're not there. But Mary's there. Mary doesn't abandon her son to his suffering. Mary draws near to her son on the cross. Mary walked, made that long walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and she walked to that temple thinking that all that was going to be required of her was five shekels and two birds. Okay, Mary's silent now, and Mary's going to walk back to Nazareth with two things, a vision of a sword piercing her soul, and hence that the sacrifice she's going to make is actually her own son. She's stunned, but she moves forward. Do you see that the real Christmas story is about light and darkness? Do you see that the real Christmas story is about peace and division? Do you see that the real Christmas story is about a king and a cross? Do you see that the real Christmas story is about salvation and swords? And do you see that the real Christmas story is hopeful? Because it's not a trope. Because it actually maps on to reality. Because the real Christmas story recognizes that we don't always get things nice and tightly wrapped up right before Christmas. The real Christmas recognizes that we don't just need a few little gifts under the tree and a few New Year's resolutions. The real Christmas recognizes we need rescue. We need conversion. We need a savior. And the real Christmas story recognizes that whatever little plot lines in our lives that don't get wrapped up in this life will get wrapped up one day. Because what we offer to the world is what the world wants more than anything else. We offer a happy ending. Not a hallmark ending, a biblical, huge, epic, happy ending. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time of year as we given this space to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls for the arrival of your son. Lord, this Christmas season, may we greet your son's arrival like Simeon and like Anna with exultation, magnifying, realizing that this is what we hunger for. This is what we need, a savior. And Lord, I also ask that you Show the people out here among us who are suffering right now that they are not alone. That they have Jesus who suffered alongside us, but they also have Mary who suffered, Lord. Thank you for not giving us a story that doesn't map on reality. Thank you for giving us a story that maps onto reality, that recognizes that life is painful. Thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for the hope it gives. In Jesus' name, amen.